Hi, I'm Jonathan Mann. And I'm Matt Condon. And welcome back to Digitally Rare, a show about digitally owned things now and now because now is the future. This episode, we chat with Galen Wolf Pauly, the operator of Tlon, one of the companies that builds Urbit. Urbit is something that I've heard a lot about, and I I feel very curious to find out what it is. So let's let's ask Galen what is up with Urbit. Urbit is a personal server, so sort of like complete software package that you can use to run programs, communicate with people, and store your data. It runs its own network, so everybody runs their own Urbit node. You connect with people directly, and to run one of these nodes, you need an ID. That ID is an NFT. You own it on the blockchain, and you use one of, you sort of register a bunch of public keys with this NFT, and then you use one of those keys to start your orbit. And that's what you use to like authenticate on the network and encrypt packets and so on. You can think of orbit today as basically like, you know, messaging, publishing, sharing links among a group of people. So like we all use group chat on pretty much all centralized platforms, even if they're encrypted. Urbit gives you great guarantees of ownership and control that sort of like nothing else can really rival. You think of Urbit in the long term as trying to sort of pick up the torch of like personal computing in a way, right? Like we all had computers on our desk, we do whatever we wanted with. Now we all use services. It's sort of hard to imagine how you get out of that world. And the idea is to sort of build a platform that lets people sort of pave their own way out. So the company does some of the work to like build some initial interfaces, things that people can use, sort of feels like a young social network today. And then, yeah, there's this whole address space, which is how you actually go about using this thing or like what you need in order to use this thing. The address space is finite because you want an address to have enough value that it's something you don't want to lose. So Urbit is both a computer, the OS, and an identity, the ID. And it's sort of a rethinking and a rebuilding of how we use computers in the internet based on all the lessons that we've learned over the last 30 years. Yeah, it seems really foundational. It seems very like all the way down to the foundations of things. And so you may be wondering, I mean, we, we you hear it a little bit with the ID. You may be wondering like exactly what this has to do with NFTs and, and Ethereum. But before we get into that, Galen just comes right out with like a really classic issue in question of course, that we've struggled with a lot here on the show about NFTs. I'm like, look, okay, projecting pixels onto my screen is free. And you're never going to be able to control my ability to project a particular image, you know, digital image. So what is it exactly that I own? And what is it about that ownership or that being a digital asset that makes this thing, you know, like, how does it have some almost physical like quality that is reflected in the thing itself. So it seems what Galen's getting at is this sense of intangibility, this like meaninglessness that comes when an object is like missing its context in which it can be meaningful, you know, where physical things have this feedback loop, this whole experience around them. Maybe it's like the social layer or the physicality, the weight of the thing that we like, and this sort of universal experience that we all have with the world and and the objects that live in it. But Digital things don't have that by default, and they miss that context where they can be meaningful. And this is something that we've just we've talked about so much over the course of this show. Because the experience of you know enjoying the JPEG that you own is so un- unremarkable. You know, and he's <laughs> he's 
he's right when he says that. I think it's easy to get it's easy to sort of forget that to most people that's still how this feels. It's easy to forget that like it it kind of is a, a little unremarkable to sit there with a JPEG that you quote unquote own and like f actually feel what that means. Right. So how do we create a context in which I feel that sense of ownership? The question, though, is like whether or not that can come to exist and how that might come to exist. It sort of seems like there are two possibilities. You have kind of like the anything sort of met the sort of metaverse like possibility that there's a purely digital means of experiencing this thing that is somehow more sublime than a JPEG on my screen. And we see that first possibility mostly in video games. Well, most people don't spend time in those environments and they don't feel any connection to them. And on the topic of a more physical bridge. Really high quality digital frames. It's like kind of interesting. It's very hard to see it being adopted, but it's interesting. He's talking about electric objects, mural, neo, and the like. And what's interesting to me about these frames is that their purpose is to take this digital object that has no context and bring it into the real world where we can pretend it's like something we already understand. As opposed to just letting it be what it actually is. For these things, it's like we're bringing them from their natural digital state and bringing them into the physical world because we have to. But like um, one thing that has happened at, you know, maybe since the beginning of quarantine actually is that I've been playing Pokemon Go with my son, Pokemon Go, everyone knows is like a, a you know an AR app on your phone where you wander around and you collect Pokemon in the real world. I played a little bit when it was like a huge deal back in 2016, but now that my son is into it, he's six and he's right at that age where Pokemon are super special. You know, like he 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 really has like the gotta catch them all mentality. He's into how they evolve and like, you know, oh, why don't we power up our, make our combat power the highest or whatever. Like he's really into that whole experience. And so doing that with him, wandering around, spinning Pokestops that are at the playground, catching different Pokemon Go, you know, Tuesdays every night on every Tuesday night, there's something called a spotlight hour where there's a special Pokemon that's going to be everywhere. So we go out wandering Tuesday nights together he gets to stay up a little bit past his bedtime. It's this really special experience, and it makes me feel something towards these Pokemon that I never have felt before. Pokemon was not a game that I grew up playing, but now that I'm playing with him, like I'm willing to do like crazy things to get certain Pokemon just so that I can share that experience with him. And that has given me a whole new perspective on what it might mean to actually like own the Pokemon that I'm that I'm catching, you know? Because I already feel like I do. They're in my phone, you know? We share them together, we trade them together. We're quote unquote best friends in the app because we play with each other every day. Yeah, you have this emotional sense of ownership and that's like a big part of that is, well, one shared experience with your son and then the huge depth of content and, and the, the complexity of the world that these Pokemon inhabit and Which, how that interacts with your real life. Absolutely. That is a, that is a, a big problem for anyone trying to create that depth of feeling in NFTs because that is something that kind of only comes with time. It makes me... It's almost like trying to compete with like Star Wars. and You know how Disney just comes out with like their huge slate of like, 
here's the Marvel and Star Wars, everything, consume it. And it's like all the other poor little streaming services are like, yeah, you know, like, what do we have to offer? Like, that's the challenge is like, there's these existing properties that have these deep ties to our childhood and to whatever else. And the, I think the challenge for NFT makers, if they want to like capture this, is how do you, and it comes back to this thing we talk about all the time, is like, how do you make it meaningful, deeply meaningful? Yeah, I think that's interesting in connection to the kind of like, yeah, when I think about there's like the art market and, and, and the tradition of making art, it does, yeah, it's like this, the technology here is interesting. The market is interesting, but it feels like it would be really great to see in a way, just like people who come from, I think people forget, I mean, art, the word art gets thrown around in ways that I always find a little bit confusing because I do think of it like there is a tradition of, of like art has this long tradition. And I think people who kind of come out of that tradition are able to like pick up the threads of its, um, you know, kind of like connect it back into history. And it feels like that's, there's, that's where the potential is in terms of what you guys are just making it meaningful. And so while Pokemon Go is a really specific example of, for example, like a video game providing a context for assets that's, that are in that world, the larger issue is like, how do you make someone care about owning a thing? And we don't know, and we don't know the answer. We don't right. know the answer to that question. But we do have this value framework that we've talked a lot about that we think is a, maybe like a place to start. Right. We've been thinking about the sense of ownership sort of delineated along the lines of this internal personal value, how much I care about a thing because it speaks to me. Maybe that's art or maybe that's a piece of memorabilia. And then there's this sort of external value where much like a market, it's what someone else will pay for it. That's why I want to own this thing so that I can give it to someone else who wants to own it for their reason. And then there's the sort of innate utility value um, associated with this thing. Maybe it's a ticket to an event or um, participation in an online community or something like that. And thinking of any object with those three lenses um, helps us understand like why someone can care about a thing. And hopefully can lead us to how to successfully give all NFTs, the context they need to be, you know, to be meaningful. And what's really interesting is that Urban ID actually fits into all three of these <laughs> right. categories. <laughs> right, totally. Which is kind of a, an oddball for the NFT space, you know, today in 2020, end of 2020, since it, usually it's sort of a pick two situation where art is um, maybe internal and external, but has no utility or like a video game item has utility and external, but like maybe I don't care about it because the video game world isn't so deep. Right. And so... Urbit checking all of these boxes right. is really interesting. And of course, the context in which the ID, this digital identifier, is useful is the OS that they've built, which hosts social software and a forum and chat for you and your friends. You can see, you can see very quickly how that personal ID in a social situation online becomes meaningful. The identity layer has a lot of thinking that's gone into it in terms of how you yeah, try and make it sort of like a friendly network by default and civil resistant. Um, and then also, yeah, make them feel like assets that you actually own um, and that you can develop some attachment to and that they're uh, memorable, recognizable. Each one is just a number, but we make it into a phonemic, like a pronounceable name. And then we do these, make these, we made these auto-generated sigils so you can actually, you know, when you meet someone new on the network, they don't have to leak personal details about themselves. They just appear as a funny name and a little image, but that can you know, sort of help you remember who they are without them having to say anything and just be, you know, everyone can remain pseudonymous. Not only do we use it in the case of the ID, 
which is just a number, and we convert that into something that's pronounceable. And that, that algorithm, of course, you can pass it any number, and it will turn it into some pronounceable uh, string of characters. The system is pretty simple. It's actually a set of 512 phonemes, you know, each of which are three letters, so like consonant, vowel, consonant. Um, and then we alternate picking from these two separate 256 sets of 256. So you basically take the number, convert it to um, base two, right? And then alternate going back and forth. I absolutely love this encoding scheme so much because it takes this largely unintelligible concept of I am one of four billion identifiers. It's really just a number and humanizes it in both like an emotional way and this operational way where emotionally, where emotionally I can connect to this identifier. It's, it's, you know, this memorable word, it sounds, I'm a human, I really like that. And then operationally, it's really easy to communicate this more so than a super large number, because I can say these sounds sort of like the NATO alphabet and communicate to another person who I am over the phone or whatever, really, really easily. But then there's also these the, uh, a visual identifier, which is equally as cool. And this process of creating the visual identifier starts with the names themselves. So it's only 512 phonemes. We took each one of those and made a small image or like vector image. And so then you can visually represent, you know, any, any Pat P really. Drawing 512 little icons is, uh, you know, tedious. <laughs> uh, it actually all starts in Figma. It's kind of interesting. So it's all like vector drawing. And then you take those vectors, right, algorithms to combine them in unusual ways, then pick the combinations that are nice, and then output that to um, SVG, basically. And then turn that actually into a JavaScript library so it can easily be represented as SVG on a web page anywhere. So it's sort of like easy to import and reuse. So the so the sigils that actually have this this uh, utilitarian thing of being a way to quickly identify them, a, a person on this network, um, not only by their little name but also just by a little symbol. They the way that the sigils are created are also something that we've seen a lot in the NFT space. Um, the generative art thing of clovers or glyphs from the Larva Labs guys, or um, Simon de la Rouvier just released a, a new one called Neolastics, like all of these different generative art symbols. But these symbols, the Urbit symbols are not just art, they're also um, a way to identify someone without having to use a photo. Right. It feels very soloit, very generative art. And I love that. And what's kind of cool about this whole ID scheme is that it was mostly designed back in 2013, but it wasn't until the OS was built and they launched the ID on Ethereum in 2019 that we get to own them today. At that point, you know, we used ERC721 because it was obvious, it just was, you know, the right thing to do. Basically, it's just an obvious technical decision, but we didn't think too much about sort of NFTs qua as, as like, as are thought of today, uh, but we're pretty different from what I think people think of as like the NFT space and even just as an asset and we could get into the economics of it. It's a super unusual asset, which has much more, uh, it's a store of value in a totally different way than like a piece of art. It's is. a great example of like having something that's really cool and, and not exactly knowing what you're going to do with it. Not knowing like the perfect use until you find the perfect use for it. And then here it is. Yeah, and it really leverages the, the blockchain technology in a very for-purpose way where for this operating system, 
you need civil resistance because you're building social software. And so you need this sense of digital scarcity for your identifiers. And then when you're building a computer, a networked OS, you want your encryption keys to be publicly available um, at all times, hence a blockchain that never goes down. It, it makes it, you know, um, so many of the things we talk about, especially on this show, fall into either the marketplace or personal category. And very, very, very few fall into the truly utilitarian. I mean, the, the, the example we always give of utilitarian is like a concert ticket. Like, you know, you buy an NFT and it gets you into the concert. But this is a much sort of much, much, much broader, truly utilitarian use for, for an NFT. But Urban ID isn't just a way to secure your OS and your social software and identify yourself on the network. It's also a more generalized digital identity. We also have a, a sort of like default wallet format. So if you, if I send you a, a, an Urban ID, if you, and you go through our registration process, we create a wallet for you that also uses that same phonemic system basically as your password. That's the seed for a, basically a wallet hierarchy. So you could potentially hold any crypto. The reason for this is really just encapsulated in the case that you wake up in a trunk somewhere, you should be able to remember, if you can remember your Urban ID, which is four syllables, and your password, which is eight syllables, you basically have identity and money and access to the network. Like everything can come back from that, which to me is like amazing. Like that's what, I mean, I want that. Like that sounds fantastic. And, you know, from that, obviously, like there are all these things that are downstream in terms of identity. It's like, is this, this thing, you know, opens my front door for me. It orders groceries for me, whatever. It connects me to other people. Um, and then, yeah, I can use it to pay for things. The NFT thing to, for us is like pure utility. It's like, but the interesting thing is like, it's the root of all utility. Like if you don't have this non-fungible sort of like root identity or nothing works, <laughs> like you can't do anything else. And so that's what the funny thing about the call to art stuff to me is like, yeah, we're just like, we're so far off in another, it's like so totally categorically different. We just happen to use the same like ERC standard or whatever. You said the phrase in a world where Urbit is successful, what does that look like? I find switching between a bunch of different services and trying to keep track of, you know, where my stuff is and how long I think it's going to last in any given service uh, to be kind of a ridiculous nightmare. I also want to be able to customize my software casually. So to me, like an Urbit future looks like in some ways something that's very retro, which is like I sit down at any device, open it, log in, and I can sort of like, I get back my whole digital life. So everything that, you know, imagine you have all of your services combined into one unified interface where I install software myself, I decide how it all sort of fits together and works together. And that, you know, that single operating system like Urbit as an OS is also on, you know, all of my devices runs things throughout my home um, and, and, and connects me with other people. The closest thing that we have to this in the world today is basically WeChat, right? So if you look at the way that people use WeChat, it's like, that's all they use. And it's amazing, <laughs> except there's, you know, some totally insane compromises you have to use that in the West we, or you, not, you, have, you have to make, right? Like you're kind of giving over privacy, durability, and control to like a single entity where so the urban vision is like do that but do it in an open source way with like real property rights everybody owns their own node and can actually control it that's the idea i mean we coexist for a long with the internet for a long time so there's like people get tripped on tripped up on like you know does urban replace the web wholesale it's like look there are plenty of things that the internet will do 
even in a world where Herb is very successful, it's like Herb it wants to replace most anything that you can think of as social software. That's like something that probably should be happening inside of Herbit or inside a platform that you control. Right. And so what's really interesting is that when you shift the nexus of control from the platform who holds all the data and is the arbiter of your identity to the user and have user-centric identity, what a wild idea, you get really interesting, amazing experiences, the kind of which like powers something like WeChat, where because you are the center of control for all of your interactions with external apps, you can have the situation where... You walk up to a bike share dock that you've never used before. You scan a QR code. It knows who you are, uh, where you are, how to charge you. It can check your your reputation and know you're not going to steal the bike all in half a second. And then you can walk away with that bike in a second later. Yeah, so like in an urban world, there's so many permutations of that story. And the idea being that's like I walk up to the thing. It sends a request to my urban, which is running software that I may have installed from some third party, but I'm never giving up any personal data. And that software could be just so small, right? It doesn't need to be this totalizing experience. Yeah. It's like, you think, think about Uber, right? Like let's take apart Uber. Okay. Take identity out of Uber, take location data out of Uber, take all of my personal location data out of Uber. Like what does Uber do? It's just a protocol for getting people uh, to connect with one another. Okay. Uber could make a good amount of money and probably be a company that's like a 10th of the size by just charging a fee to be the middleman there. And that's fine. But, you know, if, if everybody's, you know, running that software themselves, you just don't need this enormous software engineering organization that's also doing DevOps and so on, you know, to, to, to orchestrate all of that. It's, it's, it's actually just super inefficient. Uh, so anyway, that's what I feel like we're sort of on about in the, long, in the long run. So one thing I think of when I think of NFTs, of course, is that I can trade them. But that doesn't seem like something I'd want to do with my identity. Yeah, this is actually a pretty important thing to cover. Um, so yeah, so Urban IDs are... ERC721, you can go buy one on OpenSea and, you know, you can sort of buy large batches of them, buy these bigger infrastructure nodes, which have the right to issue other ones. And people kind of trade these. um, And you can think of unstarted, you know, unused Urban IDs. They're all kind of the same. Yes, they all have individual names, but it's not unreasonable to just treat them as an asset just by default. But once you start using this thing, it does, you know, accumulate some reputation ways. I think reputation is a super hard problem probably do a whole hour just talking about reputation. <laughs> Think of any any way that your reputation is tracked through it. Urban ID is like the primitive for that. Sort of like you imagine these things to build up different different sort of like dimensions on which they're known. And once that is true, then this very specific asset. So maybe one example would be there's this group of people uh, that are pretty active on Urbit that run this group called Small Computers, uh, but like small, like S-M-O-L. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, the, the reason that it's called small computers is because they're all running um, Urbit on Raspberry Pi. The small computer group runs on a specific star named DASFAB, which of course is also hosted on a Raspberry Pi. And you would imagine, like, I mean, I obviously like know, you know, I have uh, memorized that name just because I'm familiar with it, right? And so it has a reputation of being a significant node on the network. So if DASFAB ever wanted to you know, auction itself off, but that's like a very specific asset. It's like selling a business or something like that. Right. And viewed from that art lens, it's almost like a patina, a history and like a narrative attached to the asset. We always think about it like as these things become more mature and more specific, it's like you might have stars that sell for whatever, five grand because they've never been started. But like one that has, you know, provided services and has provided hosting or, you know, has a reputation it sells for 50 grand or whatever, because it's like, you want that name that has that reputation. 
which also honestly makes that like one of the things I think when people go and look at Urban ID on OpenSea, it's it, it is admittedly very confusing because it's very specific. You know, you there's like all these has it been started? Has it not been started? Has it issued planets? Does it done anything on the network? So that's an interesting point about NFTs and markets more generally is that the specificity of NFTs is, you know, it's perfectly unique, but that makes for a really inefficient market. Um, one option is you can sort of bucket things together, which we've been doing for ages with like grain in the stock market. Um, but it, of course, a lot of the joy of owning a very unique thing is its uniqueness. And that brings us to to the site called Urbit.me. Now, someone started Urbit.me. This thing is great. It's like, it's an actual, it's similar to Clover's in a way almost. Clover's, if you'll recall, is a project by Billy Renekamp, who we talked in the very last episode of season one, which feels like ages ago now. It's like hunting for sigil shapes. So people covet like the circular ones or the ones with like four. Of course they do. I mean, that's that's to me really when we get down to the nitty gritty of where, where it comes back to the NFTs because we just got done talking about a little while ago about how utilitarian it is, right? And how it's it's purely yeah. this, it's very much in this. But even so, the minute you add this feeling, suddenly there's a feeling. Suddenly yeah. someone gets yeah. a feeling when they see a circle and they're like, gotta have the frickin' circle, yeah. you know? <laughs> well, you have this with the names too. Right. So I think, I think the, the most expensive uh, planet ever, which I'm gonna, I think was like a thousand bucks, you know, they usually sell for like 20 bucks, uh, was Parrot Barrett. Ooh, pretty good. Parrot Barrett. I mean, of course, right? It's it, pretty good. Yeah, catch me on uh, Urbit.me later today. Yeah, <laughs> looking for right, looking for rare sigils. Yeah. So Galen, uh, thanks so much for for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. And Matt, uh, before we go, I would really love it if you uh, set me up on Urbit. Like, I want my own Urbit ID, and I realize I understand. You know, you have this star and you can issue Urban ID. So can you? Yeah, I will send you one right after this. Um, until then, I am Bosnite Radux on Urbit. Send me a DM and I'll add you to the growing group of people who I happen to know on Urbit. And we can all hang. Uh, well, that brings us to the end of the show. So remember, kids, get nifty <laughs> <laughs> or stay nifty. What is it? Get nifty. Get nifty. Get nifty. Fucking. Oh, God. Oh, yeah.